Hello fellow Kentuckians and other friends and welcome to a new edition of my old Kentucky podcast. My name is Robert Connie and joining me as always is Jasmine Smith. Jasmine, how are you today? I'm doing well, Robert. How are you? I'm doing well. We missed you last week. We, we had two shows. We had Buddy Wheatley, who said he uh, wanted me to make sure that I said hello to you. So hello from Buddy. Uh, and, and, you I know, appreciate that. Yeah, and, and Kate Turner filled in for you on the regular show. So she was uh, great to talk to her. Uh, you know, always good to, to talk to TikTok stars. So, yeah. uh, you know, that that was fun, too. Um, so but we are glad to have you back this week. Uh, our guest this week is uh, Dr. Representative Tina Bojanowski. She's a teacher. She's a she's a legislator um, and, and she does a ton of stuff. She's been providing a lot of leadership to uh, to the city um, in, in the midst of the transportation, you know, debacle crisis whatever you want to call it in jcps so we talked a lot about uh the busing issues at jcps the overall issues that jcps is facing the 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 you know what what the backdrop is what she's learned as the you know parents have come forward to her kind of her background she talked a lot about like her experience with jcps and then also what her thoughts are on the prospects of different bills making their way through frank through the legislature in frankfurt as they decide whether or not they want to make changes to jcps so um she's an expert she's there's nobody who knows more about this stuff in the intersection of, of schools and, and the legislature than, than Dr. Bojanowski, who does all of those things and sits at that intersection. It was a great conversation. I really liked uh, having her on the show, as I usually do. Uh, Jasmine, how did you think it went? I thought it went great. When, when I want to understand more about an education issue, she is who I want to hear break it down. She's, she does just a really good job mm-hmm. of that, I think. Last year, I heard her in Frankfurt talking about, I think it was House Bill 9. Um, and I was like, we need to have her on the show to talk about yeah. this. And I think she just, she she so she says that she likes to talk schools. And she's great <laughs> at, at talking schools. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, she, she's provided a lot of leadership in Frankfurt over the years uh, for, for Bill. I think that bill was about charter schools. Um, and, and she's been all over that for a long time, talking about you know vouchers and and all the different ways that um, they want to change schools. And she she has lots of good information about the pluses and minuses of all that sort of stuff. You know, she's also a leadership in changes that were made, um, like towards the, uh, the the way way that we do reading education now for kids. And she was front and center in that as well. So, anyways, it was good to talk to her. But we have other things to talk about before we get to that. So this is a very Louisville centric show today, um, but that's okay. It's the biggest city in the state, so we need to talk about it. The First, I think I want to talk about is Louisville, um, which the city government has decided to continue clearing homeless shell, uh, encampments in, in in the midst of this very hot weather that we experienced last week. So I wanted to talk about that. It made a lot of news um, and was, you know, not great. Uh, I wanted to talk a little bit about that. And then also there is a trial going on it's it's not like a court i don't know i guess it's a court trial jasmine's gonna tell us all about it it's anthony piagentini who is a louisville metro council member he's like the leader of the republican caucus over there um he is in some ethics hot water and and there's been a trial and jasmine's gonna tell us all about that so i'll get started by talking to us a little bit about um homelessness okay jasmine um what did you do to stay cool last week um, I didn't. I went to the desert. You? Oh, that's right. You went out of town, but it was like actually even probably hotter there than where you were. Where I, we were. I don't think so. Um, I think it was a, the same temperature here as it was there, maybe even a little cooler in Joshua Tree uh, than it was in Louisville. And it's not as humid there, yeah. so I I think it was better where I was. Yeah, you're probably right. It was uh, I had a terrible weather week, you know, being outside in the hundred degree heat, and then also then our power went out, so you know, big storm at the end of the week. <laughs> Anyways, yeah, yeah. So uh, it was extremely hot in Louisville last week, multiple days having a heat index over a hundred degrees, and. On days like this, during the Fisher administration, city government halted their encampment clearings on those days, which are called white flag days. I I wasn't really able to nail down what the definition specifically of a white flag day was, but it's just days when it's really hot outside. So the city government has always been involved in clearing encampments whenever they show up for homeless people, whenever they put up tents and uh, you know, create a community in, in a space that, that that's against the law. And so they um, 
Well, I don't, I don't even know if that's necessarily true. It, it is something that the city has decided that they don't want to have happen. So they, they clear those encampments on a regular basis. But in the past, on these white flag days, the Fisher administration decided not to go through with that. Um, but, you know, what we learned last week is that Mayor Greenberg's administration uh, did decided to go forward with some of those encampment clearings during uh, those very hot days last week, which would have been not the policy previously. Um, former Councilman Bill Hollander, uh, who has been an advocate for homeless people for quite a while, he, he covered the issue closely himself. Uh, he was out there with his camera taking pictures of, of government officials in front of uh, the, 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 you know, the garbage trucks, etc., that were clearing those encampments, uh, including Deputy Mayor Nicole George, uh, as she's out there overseeing the destruction of homeless people's tents and belongings in the middle of <laughs> triple-digit heat. Not a good look for her, I don't think. No, um, yeah. Yeah. So, so that that was going on, and he was doing a great job of like documenting it as it happened. And, and then the ACLU also got involved. Uh, the ACLU wrote a letter to the deputy mayor, uh, Deputy Mayor George, urging her to stop clearing camps during this hot weather, and then presented some evidence that the clearings might be unconstitutional. So. The city government did point out the fact that white flag days make more resources available. So on these white flag days, shelters are allowed to house as many people as needed during white flag days, and it also in, in, increases the availability of overnight accommodations. Um, it, essentially, like uh, th this means more services are available to homeless people on those days. And also, clearings are scheduled multiple weeks in advance. They want to give people who live in these encampments plenty of time to leave. I think most people do pack up and leave, so the people who are left are just like the, the the last people who are there um the day schedule does correspond with the white flag day the city has the option to delay but you know such moves might be confusing or controversial in their own right for for their delay or or you know you say you're going to clear everybody on that day and then you didn't or or, or whatever um that that's maybe the other side of this story so Kevin Traeger, who is the spokesperson for Mayor Greenberg, he was quoted, uh, I saw it in Wave 3, uh, as saying, quote, we must focus on uh, limiting the growth of encampments, especially in areas around schools, neighborhoods, and other family gathering places in the interest of public safety, unquote. So that's the mayor's uh, dis decision there. Uh, he said it's about public safety. I, I, I don't really know if there, I, I have not heard about like in increased public safety issues around in encampment areas. I, I do think that that, that follow like a lot of people feel like that follows logically but i haven't seen a lot of evidence to, to back that up so the focus of the city government seems to be on pushing people who are unhoused out of encampments and towards services i think that's i i would say that that's what i feel like the focus is um we've talked at length at, uh, on the show about mayor greenberg's home plan for homeless people um and, and honestly a lot of them seem good you know a lot of them we we thought hey this sounds like a, a good use of resources i'm glad we're putting resources to this I, i'm glad that we're increasing services and and dealing with people coming out of the hospital to try to keep them into you know there's a lot of stuff that we've talked about that we thought were good but but the thing is a lot of the plans that were put in place will take a while to materialize a lot of those plans are not here now and in the meantime, there are a lot of people who basically have the option to stay outside or to go to a shelter. And the thing is, the shelters themselves could very much be overcrowded or, or dangerous. And, and yeah. the other side of this coin is to say when shelters, you know, having more resources available, we aren't expanding the capacity of these shelters buildings. You know, we can't like grow them like they're Ant-Man or something. You know, they are the size that they are. So saying we won't turn anybody away also means that the, the shelters are more crowded than they ever will be. I don't really know what that means for staffing or ratios for people who are working in these shelters versus the number of people who are in there. So that increases the likelihood of some sort of danger or, or, or violence or whatever like there, there's good reasons for wanting to stay out of a shelter for, for some of these people you know i i just want to put that out there and say that 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 may be the case so um that is what that is uh, clearing encampments as a strategy is also not really something that has a record of successfully dealing with issues around homelessness the aclu's letter quotes an author named sarah k rankin and i thought this quote was was worthwhile quote evidence overwhelmingly suggests that encampment closures are expensive exercises in futility instead of improving homelessness encampment closures destroy property and disrupt fragile communities often leaving unsheltered people more likely to remain homeless unquote so yes uh you know you you're getting something like 
Like maybe somebody has a spot where they know they can sleep. Maybe that gives them a, a, some measure of stability, a, allows them to try to get on their feet, maybe to, to put an application in. Maybe they have a place where they can get their mail. Uh, maybe they can access services, uh, you know, food, and, and maybe maybe even get a job and, and maybe be able to escape that cycle. But if you take that thing that might be a little bit of security for them and then throw it in the trash can like that's just going to start them over on this entire journey so so it's 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 not exactly a, a strategy with a track record of success however the homeless population in Louisville and all other urban communities across the entire United States has really exploded this has led to more frustration and anger with the problem from everybody. You know, of course, the unhoused people who aren't maybe new to being unhoused are very frustrated with this situation. But also we have to, you know, be realistic that the people who there are a lot of people who are inconvenienced by encampments, who who, who don't like them to be around them. And, and those people are loud and angry about the increase in homelessness in their community. Louisville is not the only community dealing with this issue by any stretch of the imagination. Other cities have taken much more draconian measures. San Diego just passed an encampment ban. They basically just said, you cannot camp here. I do not think that Louisville has quite gone that far, even though we are clearing these things. Um, Houston has started ticketing people for giving food to homeless people. So if you, you know, are like, hey, you look hungry, here's a hamburger, they will give you a ticket for that. Like, yeah, so that's not great, I don't think. Sacramento has a court order to stop clearing encampments and have just ignored it and continued to clear encampments. So, um, you know, that there are a lot of communities that are struggling with how to deal with this issue. um, and, And yeah, it has led to a lot of problems. Um, it's it's politically impossible for the city to do nothing about encampments just because of how loud people are that are frustrated with the issue. And the serious solutions to this issue are long-term and complex. Uh, it's not easy to deal with this problem. It is a, a result of a lot of complex issues around housing, around mental health care, around access to services, around unemployment. All of these things lead to homelessness. So it's a very complex issue and dealing with it is very difficult. However, there is no need to clear homeless people in 100-degree heat. Uh, If you're like, hey, all of our real solutions are complicated, the easiest thing to do is to just not clear the encampments when it's that hot outside. Doing that is bad politics. It makes you look bad in the media. It's just an own goal that you didn't need. And that's not something I'm used to seeing from the Greenberg administration. They have done some stuff I didn't necessarily agree with, but I felt like they did it in a way that it looked better for them. Uh, this is something that's just like completely unnecessary. Wait until when it's a little bit cooler outside and this just doesn't make the news at all. Instead, um, you're getting dragged through the mud by by people who you need to vote for you in the next election in order to keep your seat uh and it's it's not a good look for them that's bad politics and also uh, that's just very surprising um for me I want to go on a little bit further to say that, like, there is a lot more to this issue. The Nation magazine, um, it's a good magazine sometimes. It it had a really good article, though, about homelessness and public policy in their most recent issue. And there's a paragraph I just want to read in in full about this. Okay, here, here it is. Advocates need to better acknowledge that the anger felt by many residents of high homelessness areas... Living near large concentrations of extreme poverty is unpleasant, and it can, in some cases, be unsafe. People have a right to be frustrated, and the far right will have a significant advantage so long as it can claim that only they share that frustration. Even worse, the far right's proposed solution, which is dispersing encampments and rounding up the occupants, is more straightforward, despite its cruelty and ineffectiveness. The only way to counter that advantage is by making disgruntled residents feel heard, unquote. And this is something I see a lot uh, that I would I would criticize people who, who think like this is really horrifying uh like me where people will say like what's the problem with having homeless people around like why do you get so upset about that like people are gonna be frustrated by that you have to start by acknowledging it's not pleasant to have extreme poverty around you um and and and, you know that that that's just the reality that a lot of people face uh and unless we can come to that uh realization we're never going to move forward because the far right 
feels that frustration uh, alongside the people who feel that way and their proposed solution is cruel it's inhumane and it's not great um and that's what we're doing here in in louisville um our solutions here cannot fall into the trap of being easy and cruel uh and, and the policy uh you know this policy that has been put forward by the greenberg administration and the fisher administration before that and basically every mayoral mayoral administration i can remember of clearing these encampments that's responding to a real feeling of frustration but i would really hope that our leaders presented a, a countervailing solution that both hears people who are frustrated and also acts with a bit of humanity that that's where we have to go on this issue that's where i hope we can get to I have a lot of sympathy for our leaders as they deal with homelessness because it's such an exploding problem. It's getting so much worse, and there are no clear solutions. There are no easy wins here. However, it would be very simple to just avoid the bad press of this week by simply delaying the clearings by a week. Uh, I guess that's the last thing I have to say. A little bit, of, a little bit of an own goal, but a big issue that requires a lot more, a lot more work. Um, I don't know, Jasmine. What, what do you have to say about all that? Yeah, I mean, I agree with everything you have to say. And we're talking about the bad politics of it because this is a political show. But it's also just, like, a really cruel thing to do to, yeah. like, people who are whole people with agency um, and have really good reasons, potentially, to not go to an overcrowded shelter. Um, and so, yeah, this this was just a really bad move from a political standpoint, but also just as from like a humanity oh, yeah. standpoint, I think. Um, but I, yeah, I agree with everything that it, you said about it. it, it, it I, I mean, I just, I, I don't want to say, I don't want it to look like I'm not saying, I'm not saying that it is cruel. Oh, no, I, I don't think you were. Yeah. I just, okay. Yeah. Yeah. The, the thing that. I, I know that you think it's cruel and that you said that. Yeah. Um, yeah, I, this, this and then this is kind of the trap, right? I do think that like when you when you express you know frustration with homelessness, people you know there there is a segment of people who will just be like, well, just what what's the deal? Um, what, you know, the, you know these people are just trying to get along. Where do you want them to go? What do you want them to do? All of that, all of that's true. All of that's real. Yeah. People do have agency. There isn't good solutions here, but that frustration is also just as real. And and, and you have mm-hmm. to hear that. And our solutions have to. I, I I really just do think that our solutions have to take that into account and say that we're dealing with this problem because we feel your frustration, and also because these people are whole people with agency, um, who who have a right to their bodies and their possessions. You know that they they have they have all that as yeah. well Oof. homelessness is just such a difficult issue it's a hard thing um and and it's getting worse and uh it's it's a real problem it's a big big problem with urban policy uh, this decade for sure all right jasmine switching gears quite a bit tell us uh about anthony piagentini and his trial in front of the ethics committee commission okay so louisville metro councilman anthony piagentini's ethics commission trial wrapped up last week so um, this is not a trial like in in Jefferson Circuit Court or anything. It's a trial uh, before the Louisville Metro Ethics Commission. So the allegations are that Piagentini used his Metro Council position to um, land a $40 million grant for a project championed by a Louisville Healthcare CEO Council. So he was hired for a one-year consulting job by the healthcare CEO council the day after Metro Council approved the American Rescue Plan funding for the project. Um, so it, it's basically an allegation of like a quid pro quo kind of thing, like advocating for the grant, consulting job the next day kind of thing. Um Piagentini says his advocacy for the grant and the job are unrelated. So the ethics complaint came about uh, because Kevin Fields, the CEO of Louisville Central Community Centers, also applied for the grant, and he is the one who filed the ethics complaint. Piagentini faces seven violations. So improperly soliciting or accepting a promise of employment use of his official position to secure unwanted privileges or advantages, impairment of objectivity or independent judgment as a Metro officer, 
failing to disqualify himself from a matter pending before Metro Council where he had a private or financial interest, failing to disclose a, a financial, failing to disclose a financial or private interest, failing to update financial disclosure forms, and finally, um, use of his official position to obtain unwarranted privileges when he got a free ticket to a CEO council event at Churchill Downs, which was valued between $199 to $499. So those are the different allegations. The chief executive of the CEO council testified that the job had nothing to do with the grant. Um, Piagentini testified to that as well. Um, the chief executive testified that she talked to him about the job on November 18th, and he told her that he would have to remove himself as a sponsor of the ordinance and recuse himself from the vote, which he did on December 1st um, before they voted. But he didn't disclose what his conflict was on the record, though, and he also could have recused himself and disclosed it sooner. Um, Piagentini's attorney argued that it was unfair that one of the two, one of two of the Republicans sitting on the ethics commission was the investigating officer on his case. So um, there are two Republicans on the ethics commission one of them is the investigating officer, so he will not be voting. Right. And Piagentini's attorney <laughs> believes that's unfair. Um, but the investigator, the investigating officer, Robert Boyd, said, I can assure Mr. Piagentini that he would not want me voting because at this point I would urge the commission to find Mr. Piagentini guilty on all seven counts. Yeah, yeah, not great. Not great for Anthony Piagentini. Yeah. <laughs> so that was interesting. Um, the commission held preliminary deliberations on Thursday of last week, but they will recess until September 1st. Um, they are awaiting post-trial pleadings from the attorneys and for trial transcripts to be created by court reporters so that they can um, review all the testimony at the trial they must have finished deliberations um, within 60 days, but they are set to deliberate again um, on September 1st. So just like a little bit about how this works. The Ethics Commission is appointed by the mayor and approved by Metro Council. And the commission will decide if Piagentini violated the ethics code um, but then the council would decide if there should be any discipline. And that can um, be anything from some kind of sanction up to um, removal proceedings. The commission can also turn over any evidence it collects to the attorney general, the U.S. attorney's office, or any other law enforcement agency if they believe that um, there's been like any criminal activity or anything like that. So, um that's where we are right now. Um, in the next 60 days, uh, we'll know the findings of the e ethics commission um, in this trial. What do you think is going to happen, Jasmine? I don't know. I think, I think that there are issues here and I think there are issues because he actually applied to the job in like January of 2022. There wasn't a job at the time. And then there, you know, then there's advocacy for this grant. There's discussion about the job. And then he recuses himself on the, on the day of the vote and then gets the job the next day. Um, and I believe that there was testimony that he was told that the the job would have nothing to do with whether they get the grant or not. Um, and I, but the timing of it is bad. And I think the fact that he didn't disclose what the conflict was on the record and that he he waited to disclose um, could be a problem. 
And so I, I'm not sure if he'll he'll be found to have committed all all seven violations because I don't know what all of the testimony was. Um, but I could definitely see him being found guilty of some ethics violation. I'm not sure if the penalty would be as severe as removal, though. I think that's how I what I think. I I don't know. Uh, I I don't know. It's kind of interesting. Um, so, I, I, I first of all, I think that he will be found guilty of of some of these. I, I think yeah. that the ones that I think are the most up in the air are the first two improperly soliciting or accepting a promise of employment so being able to prove or like whether there's enough evidence to prove that um he actually did solicit or accept the job uh you know improperly is tough and then also use of his official position to secure unwanted unwarranted privileges or advantages like those are the two that i think are the most key and i do Mm -hmm. think if he if if he is found guilty on all the charges he potentially could be removed. I do think that that's in play. Um, I think if he only gets like the last four, he likely will face some sort of censure or sanction or something like that. And we'll just go about doing it. But, you know, Louisville has removed or voted to remove council members before. Um, I do know Jessica. No, which one? Which one's the mother? I forget. Oh, gosh. Green. Uh, I don't I don't think Jessica Green got removed. Did she? Yeah. Yeah. They voted judy green her mother not jessica okay i was like i don't think so that's that that, that's like so that i mean that's like a big story right is like she judy green was removed she was uh you know removed from her position and then her daughter jessica green won the seat back after she died which was like a big that was a whole big piece of drama there in the first district um in in between the time they appointed attica scott to this spot that was like how she ended up on the council etc um but i you know vitalis uh i do not remember if he was removed but there was like a lot of discussion and i think they kind of wanted him to be removed um dan johnson faced significant sanctions around his uh spot like i think you know dan johnson was in fact removed from office so he uh they there have been there have been several people who have been removed yeah i guess i guess there is quite a bit of precedent for it so but everybody who's ever been removed has been a democrat and uh that is they're a member of the majority caucus there has never been a republican removed from office and there will be like a lot of partisan wringing of hands if anthony piagentini who was a very out front front and center republican yelling at people including me on social media um, <laughs> yeah probably the most front and center republican on metro council yeah so so it is kind of interesting like would would metro council take this step when they knew it would become a hassle would become a controversy um i i think if the the if it comes back that all seven uh are are found he's found guilty on them i i think that there will at least be proceedings to the fact so so we will see i don't know um but yeah there is a lot of history of this happening um and and yeah like that i, I mean at the end of the day like i do think uh, uh you know anthony piacentini engaged in some shady behavior and could have really avoided this if he had just been a little bit more transparent and it wouldn't have changed much yeah um, that that's what i think too because just as someone who has never run for office but you know has a lot of like ethics rules to follow and rules of professional responsibility as an attorney those are things that i'm always thinking about and as as someone who has helped someone run for judge i mean just in doing that like we were constantly reading the judicial canons and ethics rules because they're so important um and and you should want to do things the right way (laughs) and and there was there were ways to avoid what happened here yeah absolutely all right um well you know we'll see we'll see what happens with with anthony piagentini as it moves forward but uh all right i guess that's uh it for this part of the show let's get to our interview with representative tina bojanowski Dr. Tina Bojanowski is a member of the Kentucky House where she represents parts of eastern Jefferson County. In addition to her service in the legislature, she is a special education teacher with Jefferson County Public Schools. She graduated from Louisville Central High School and the University of Louisville and received her Ph.D. from Bellarmine University. We asked her to come talk to us about recent issues with JCPS. So, Tina Bojanowski, welcome back to my old Kentucky podcast. 
Thank you so very much. Delighted to be here. Yeah, we are so happy to have you on your birthday of all days. Yes, this is very it exciting is my stuff. Birthday. Yeah, yeah so, my principal said, what are you going to do tonight? I said, I'm going to be on the podcast. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's, I mean, that's everyone's dream to be on our podcast <laughs> on their birthday. Uh, yeah, well, we also, we very much appreciate you being here. And, uh, you know, you've taken such a leadership role in, in the recent days with JCPS. We thought it would be very important to speak with you about it. It's no surprise. It's no, you know, no one's shocked to hear JCPS has had a very rough start to the school year. It's kind of smoothed out. I feel like maybe we can talk, get into that here in a second. But, you know, at least the first week or so in the news every day, lots of stuff happening with issues related to the buses, you know, closing the schools for almost a week. In the aftermath of that, you held a, a big public forum for families during the time when, when school was actually shut down. So we would just love for you to talk a little bit about that. Um, how did that come about? What did you learn from the families that uh, showed up, and, and what actions did you, uh, you know, did you think to take after you heard from everybody? Okay, so I'll tell you the catalyst. So the weekend, it was just. I guess school started on Wednesday, August the 9th, and then closed the next day. And the the Saturday of that weekend, um, right after that, I attended what was a pre-planned, not intended to just, you know, oh, we're going to have a a meeting without parents, but it was a pre-planned, the the school board, two members of the school boards were meeting with different stakeholders. And this particular weekend, the meeting was with elected small city members. So it was the League of Cities and legislators were invited. And a parent came because someone had plopped that meeting, which is, you know, the timing of it was unfortunate for the district because it seemed like, oh, we're having a meeting and we're not including parents. But it was actually, you know, a pre-planned school board trying to gain information on how they can better govern the school district. And so there was a parent there who came and who was just really upset and really wanted her voice to be heard. And she realized that it wasn't a meeting for parents. And she was a little bit upset at that. Um, And then I talked to her a little bit. And what I realized at that moment on that Saturday morning is that parents really needed to have somewhere to have their concerns heard um, by someone who wasn't um, wasn't just going to listen, but someone who could then take some actions on their concerns, whether it be immediate or long-term in, in policy development. So it kind of brewed into an idea of, you know, well, first I was like, I'll just invite the woman I met for coffee the next day. And then it became, well, I'll kind of have a little event. And then it became, we're going to do this event at Brown Park. And we did a little press release about it, just thinking the press would be knowledgeable about it. And then they broadcast it to the entire city. So then the mayor of St. Matthew's, who I'd just spoken to for the first time, called me back and said, did you know? And I was like, Yes. And so we were prepared for it to become an outrageously huge thing. And I was really worried about it. And what it really ended up being was a a lovely event where there were five or six different legislators there. It wasn't a huge group event. It was we talked for a few minutes and then we divided up so parents could have a chance to voice their concerns to us as legislators. And multiple people had come up to me either during the event or afterwards and just said, we really needed that as parents is to be heard. And for us then to be able to take that information and think about it, you know, we did do a little um, QR code and we collected some information from parents. Um, It was posted on social media as well. And so we've got a whole kind of database of information. I sorted through it for immediate concerns that I forwarded on to the district regarding certain bus routes and that. And then we can take it. And here are some really important concerns from parents that we can use as we consider development of policy. So 
that was that was kind of how it went. And thankfully now I think the mayor of St. Matthews will take my call again <laughs> if I ask to have a little event at the pavilion at, at Brown Park. So Yeah. Well, I mean, it sounds like it was a very necessary event. It also sounds like you got a lot of good information. And, you know, uh, uh, I'm glad that somebody was there to do that. And, and I'm really glad it was you. Um, as somebody who who with a foot in both of these worlds, as as we right. kind of see, yeah. Um, so so you know there has been a lot that has changed since the shutdown and reopening, um, and and it does feel like there maybe has been a little bit of stabilization. Although you know neither Jasmine or, or I have have children that are in school yet, uh, so you know it's not in the news every day like it was before. So from from your perspective, as somebody who's a lot closer to it, do you feel like enough has been done to fix this situation, or are there bigger changes that need to happen? Um, I think that there are some really huge changes that need to happen. And I think we need to figure out how we can end up with more bus drivers, because I feel like I did ask for, you know, how many buses are getting late to school and how many children still have to stay after school more than 30 minutes. Um, And then I was told, oh, you can file an open records request. And I just wasn't going to burden them with it right now. I'm going to wait a little bit. But you know, this was supposed to solve that problem of kids missing school or having to be at school, you know, too long after school ends or being on long bus routes. But you can see nationwide, school districts are having problems hiring bus drivers. And there are options. I mean, you can work at Amazon or you can work at at UPS. And at Amazon or UPS, it's, you don't have 80 children on the bus you know, it, 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 it's a hard job. And we as a state are going to have to look at it very closely and ensure that full payment of transportation funding is being made to these districts so that we can solve this problem. So I think that the action that the district has taken, and I still, you know, I'm very eager to find out what an outside audit is my understanding right now is going to happen into why we ran into the problems we ran into. You know, our district has been busy, has, has been tra- providing transportation for, you know, I rode a school bus to school in the 1980s. So, you know, to have such a disaster of a first day, there were some major mistakes made logistically. Um, we need to figure out what those are. Um but the the main problem is there just aren't enough bus drivers to have shorter routes, fewer children on the buses, and fewer children who either get to school, you know, are we still getting to school late? Are they still missing instructional time? Yeah, efficiencies can only take you so far, and I feel like this year was about right. trying to trying to do more with less, and it turns out we just we just need more. We just need more right. at the end of the day. Right, and then I think the other thing that we really need to look at, I don't know if it's legislatively or if it's just in the regs, one thing that was very shocking to me is that bus drivers don't have the technology on their screens in a bus saying, here's where you're going next. Here's a traffic jam. Go this way. There are routes. There are stops. They had pieces of paper, little booklets, I mean, of paper guiding their routes. And to me, that was just shocking. And and I haven't really dug into the clarification about, you know, apparently right now with the regulations, a bus driver can listen to a GPS, tell them where to go, but they cannot look visually at a screen for safety. So we need to decide, you know, where we are with technology right now, um, what we need to do to ensure that the drivers, you know, because I I understand that some of the roads that they were told to turn on didn't have signs Mm -hmm. and and those kind of things. So, yeah. I just I find it shocking that the bus drivers were were doing their routes off paper system. Yeah, there, there's a lot of hopefully there's more stuff like that, because if we can uncover it, maybe there are some more efficiencies we can find. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's good that people are doing this digging now. Um, but, you know, you're more than a legislator. You're also a teacher and you've been dealing with busing issues for a long time. You already mentioned that peop- there were a lot of children that were already riding the bus and not getting there on time every day. And that was the reason right. we created this situation in the first place. You know, you've been dealing with this long before this was in the news, like every day going on. Um, so we're just interested. Uh, you know, what is it like trying to teach 
these days with uh, with with the current busing situation with kids getting there all day and, and having to stay after? Like, what is what is that environment like for you as a teacher? Um, so in my specific building, usually the buses are all in within 10 to 12 minutes of bell time. We've been doing really well with that. Now we're 740. So when you're the first bell time, things don't back up. So I'm not sure how it's going in, in the later start times. But, um, you know, all our kids are in and they'll make the announcements. All the buses are in. You can take your attendance. Um, so we haven't had an issue. And none of our buses stay after. Well, because we're the early dismissal, we don't have any delays Um you know, in, in departures. Now, what is a little different this year and probably in a lot of the schools is that we have a lot more car riders. So that's the duty that I have where I support the car riders and it's, you know, group after group of students and we have a lot more car riders leaving. Um, sometimes if I don't leave, well, if I leave, it depends on how long I drive by Great House Chirac on my way home. And there are lines of cars down, you know, mm-hmm. um, Brown's Lane, Hubbard's Lane, whatever. And, um, you know, I think that the car rider situation is something that the district's going to have to look into, too, balancing some of those different times. Um, I, I don't know much about it, but the logistics of how many parents are then driving and how to handle that car rider pickup. Um, is something to think about as well. Helping parents to organize carpools, right? That's a... Yeah, and and, I mean, we've got it down to an art. You know, we've got two rows going, the kids, you know, and the way they come in. I mean, there's kind of a science to it and our whole systems. Um, But but so, you know, that's just another logistic. And, you know, think about in my district, we have where the VA hospital is, and that's right by Ballard High School and Camera Middle School and Wilder Elementary School. And then the VA hospital's building in there and um, Dunn Elementary on the other end. You know, there's a lot to do with traffic in some of these areas and the car rider lines sort of back up into, into traffic lanes. And so I'm not sure which parts of the county that that's a concern, but that's something kind of near short term that I think needs to be looked at. Absolutely. Yeah, there's there's a lot of issues. Uh, Lots of lots of little things like that, that we need to address. And it sounds like the the impetus is there to start doing some of that work. Well, the questions that Jasmine's going to ask next kind of relate to the changes that that the Republicans in the legislature want to make. And and, you know, they they are kind of about changing the entire structure of JCPS or changing where kids go to school. And and, you know, you you mentioned, uh, you know, riding a bus as a kid and and, and, you know, you obviously are a teacher now, just explained your your responsibilities there with the transportation issues. And, you know, you went to you went to Central High School and, and I did. Uh, you were you were part of, uh, you know, the, the I guess like the original segment of yes. busing. I uh, graduated from high school in 1982 and I was a part of I believe it was 1974 through mm-hmm. 1984, 1974, 75 through 84 of the mandatory desegregation. Right. That was the quote-unquote, forced busing. Mm -hmm. So only within that time frame were students across the district forced to go to a different school. Now, I went to J-Town High School, and students who um, were white, who lived in the East End and went to J-Town, were bused. And and if your last name ended with A, B, F, F or Q, Q, yeah, huh? <laughs> B, F, and Q, so I was a B for Bojanowski, um, you were bused in 11th and 12th grade. Yeah. So that's why I went to Central. Now, the students who lived in the Central resides, whose last names ended with A, B, F, and Q, it was very inequitable because they were bused for, I think, eight years in different years. So the brunt of the desegregation continued till today until Dr. Polio changed the our student assignment plan to fall on our, our students, you know, with black and brown skin. Um, now, no matter what anyone says, forced busing ended in 1984. My brother graduated from Central High School in 1984. That was the last year that we had the mandatory desegregation plan. And that's when we shifted into how we developed our magnet programs. 
And it was not a mandatory desegregation for most people, but it was, you know, like today until, until Dr. Polio's new plan, the majority of children who were transported out of their resides area do it by choice. And so even when I started knocking doors, the first time I ran for election, people talk about how, um, you know, we don't want busing. We don't want kids going on buses, but, you know, kids want, want to go to manual high school. You know, they they want to go to the magnet programs. They want to go to the traditional programs or to the academies. Um, and they also talk about how problematic it is um, to, to have so much, tra you know, transportation. But there's this document, and I just happen to have it right here. Um, I didn't actually pull it out on purpose, but I did have it right here. <laughs> I carry it around with me. Um so it's a it's a revenues and expenses per capita. So by student, and if you look at our transportation costs, and this was from 21-22, our pupil transportation costs per student were nine hundred ninety four dollars, and that was forty ninth in the state. So by student, we spend less money than forty eight other districts. Mm -hmm. So. Yeah. That's something, you know, of course, by dollar, we have a lar the largest district, but by student, you know, number one is Livingston County. Number two is not County. Number yeah. three is Owsley, you know, all these counties. So, um, so the concern about, you know, parents, parents want to have some choice in where their kids go to school. And we have in our magnet systems, a lot of options for parents to pick a school that fits their child. Yeah. Uh, no, that that's I I was I didn't even ask the question, but you answered it. That's perfect. Uh, you know, um, like like a lot of people that 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 had that experience, you have such a you know that that story looms so large in your life. You know, um, my my mother's last name is Butler, uh, and and she uh -huh. she was uh, went to Westport for her first two years and ended up at Central. Um, you know, uh, uh, several years before you, but but uh, was was that was what happened? And my uncle who um, went to mail when it first became a magnet. So you know, th these types of things happen in, mm -hmm. in our families. And you know, my but you know, my mom has this such a such a negative uh, you know experience, like talking about how how traumatic or like how how it was being plucked away from your friends and taken right. across the city to a situation. And hers was the first integrated class, and oh, you know, right. going into schools that had been under resourced for a really long time, um, and. And, and you know that wasn't fair for anybody. Um, but then yeah. you know when it came time for me to go to school, it was it had no problem putting me on a bus and sending me to Mazik right. or or Manual. It, it just goes to show you that it is kind of like just it's it's a part of our culture here in Louisville, and, and it has just kind of become we have to think about it with open eyes and what do people actually want and what would it mean to change and and is it worth it? Like these are all questions yeah. we're going to have to. Start and I asking. had kind of an interesting experience and in sort of my first foray into learning about politics. So we were at Central High School. I was eighty two. And um, John Y. Brown III um, was in the class ahead of me. So we were in school with the governor's kid at Central, and he was also bused to Central. And so, you know, here's this um, kid of a single mom, you know, YMCA hourly salary going to school with the governor's kid. And um, no, we had, I had a phenomenal experience. In, in my experience at Central. I mean, I, I did high-level courses. I went all the way through calculus. I, you know, it just, um, my brother's class and my brother went to Brown. His friend, he had a friend with him with Brown. I mean, they, it, it, it was a great experience. And then you have the whole, um, you know, getting out of your little part of the city and there's more mm -hmm. of a city and there are more people who live in the city than just you. And, and, um, so I, I, being bused to central was one of the best things that ever happened to me. Yeah. So now I have to talk about what might happen next session. So right. as a member of the legislature, uh, you'll have a voice in the next session, whether that's persuasive to Republicans mm -hmm. or not, you know, that's that's another thing. Um, but Republicans have promised to make big changes to JCPS. Um, what do you think the prospect are for the different changes that have been proposed, like neighborhood schools or breaking 
JCPS into different districts, et cetera? Um, I think that the prospect for them doing a bill to put a constitutional amendment on the ballot is very strong. And that is to be able to do vouchers that can take public money to pay for private and parochial schools. I think that's very strong. I think that's going to happen. Um, the, the possibility that that constitutional amendment would pass, it would be in 2024. Uh, I'm not real convinced that it would pass. So, um, so that's really strong about breaking up JCPS. So it's my understanding that they want to do a study. So the question would be, who would they study? And what kind of outcomes are they looking at? You know, if you're wanting to do an outcome such as, I want my constituents in the East End to not be stressed because the more at-risk kids are going to school with them, yeah, no, that's a pretty easy sell. But if you want outcomes that we we as a society need to ensure that all of our children are educated because we live in this society, we live in this city. We don't just, you know, live in one tiny part of the city. We live in the whole city. And we want all of our children to be educated because it impacts all of us, whether it's safety, whether it's, you know, workforce development, you know, everything. Um, what kind of measures and how would a smaller JCPS, um, how would how would that impact those measures? So, you know, they're talking about a study. I think um, I think some of that is political in that they're not real content with decisions of the school board and that maybe they see a political avenue for having different school boards if it's you know, gerrymandered in a certain way mm -hmm. that the district could be, you know, everything in politics is political. So, and, you know, you have to kind of look at it that way. Um, as far as neighborhood schools. So here's, here's the thought process that concerns me about neighborhood schools. Number one, what if I wanted my child to go to manual? Would that still be an option? Okay. What if I want, what if, all right, so let's just take Crosby, for example. What if you say every child within a certain radius of Crosby Middle School gets to go to Crosby? Okay. Crosby will be full. And that child who lives still within the county, but outside that radius is going to have to go. Now, every other school in the East End is also going to be full with their radius. So say you live in a, a further out than where it's full radius, where are you going to go to school? It's all easy until you start thinking about logistics. And that child might have to go to school. Those children might have to go to school halfway across the county. You know, so how do you, how do you decide what a neighborhood school is and what the boundaries are and who would have to go there? You know, and and how how can you do that? I think Dr. Polio with his choice zones gave for the first time in, I mean, since mandatory desegregation, since 1974 or 75, the children who live in the West End could choose to go to a school somewhere near their homes. Wow. And those are the children who needed exactly the change that just happened. Mm -hmm. Now we have clusters. And so within our clusters, there may be schools that your child could be assigned to, but. Um, and and clusters, know. clusters are for elementary schools is I think that, that's for, mm -hmm. for people who may not understand. Oh, yeah. 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 Like clusters a, are for elementary and mm -hmm. then for middle and high, you have a resides. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, yeah. And, and I do think that a lot of the people kind of conflate the two or get confused because most, I mean, everybody can, got to go to their neighborhood schools when you get to middle school and high school for the most part. Uh, right. Most of the, the time where you may get assigned to a school that isn't as close to you is at the elementary school level. And almost always you're going to the school that's the second or third closest to mm -hmm. you if you're not. I mean, right. it, that's there are rare exceptions, but that's generally the way that it works. And, and so it is. And yeah. I can't see how that wouldn't be the same, even if you had a neighborhood school policy. 
because schools have limited capacity. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I live very close to Hawthorne Elementary, which is a very small school. Uh, mm-hmm. and, and there are a lot of people in our neighborhood who don't get to go there because it fills up so quickly. It's a magnet program, right. et cetera. Um, and, but, you know, the way that we do elementary schools here, it's like there, there are two. There's Camp Taylor and Bloom that are quite close to our house, too, right. that aren't, aren't, aren't uh, inaccessible. So there are just so many more elementary schools. Uh, there, there's so much about this. And, and I hope that we're getting into the nuance and detail here enough that people understand saying this is a really complicated issue and just boiling it down to you can go to the school that's closest to you just doesn't make sense Um, right yeah yeah so louisville republicans from the outskirts of jefferson county have long pushed for changes to jcps but by and large the state have kind of stayed out of jcps's business for the most part do you think that there's anything that jcps can do now to try to stop the state from some of these like major interventions that are being proposed? Well, I mean, I'm not sure that the state has stayed out of JCPS. You can think back just recently where we were almost under state takeover and Dr. Polio only within a couple months was on the floor in a committee mentioning how many different audits have just been done in JCPS. I mean, it's audit, this audit, and this audit, and this audit, and this audit, and we're just coming out of a corrective action plan for our special education. I mean, there's been a lot of scrutiny on JCPS, a lot of scrutiny. And, you know, there's going to be more. And a lot of criticism, you know, that all eventually boils down to like test scores. And it's like, well, you know, sometimes, and and sometimes it just, kind of infuriates me as a teacher because you're looking at maybe average test scores and you're not knowing, number one, you're not recognizing the phenomenal academic achievement that comes out of JCPS. You know, the the number of students who um, just highly excel. And then we also have to take into accord Number one is the students who are experiencing extreme trauma, you know, homelessness. I've I've heard at one point that maybe, I think we had on record maybe 5,000, maybe it's like 10,000 students are are considered to be, you know, somewhat unhoused in a certain way. And then, I mean, you have to take into account our children who are multilingual students who are just Mm -hmm. learning the language. And you're saying you're measuring them by these test scores and then saying they're failing when the achievements that they've made um, are are sometimes just phenomenal. So I think we need to relook at and revamp. And there is some energy for that, how we do our testing and how we evaluate how our students are doing in the school system, something that is more, um, I guess, not not just a standardized multiple choice, let's read two hours worth worth of passages, and then we'll tell you if you're failing or not failing, but let's kind of get into the detail. You know, you can, I can have a student who can read who doesn't care anything about standardized assessment assessments and just goes click, click, click and is, you know, looks like we're failing teachers or I can have a student who can read and whose comprehension struggles. There might be that, but then those children are pegged as they can't read, but they can read. So we need to know which children can look at a page and read it. That's one issue. And that which children look at a page and can read it, but don't have the context or the background knowledge or the language skills or the reasoning skills, or what are the skills that we actually need people to have when they go into the workforce? How many of our jobs require reading? So we're doing something in JCPS right now called MAP. And MAP is through the, um, it's called NWEA, and it's it's a um, comprehension assessment that we give, and it's effectively 40 little passages. And you read a paragraph and you answer a question. You read a paragraph and you answer a question. How much of workforce is answering multiple choice questions? 
what skills do we really need our mm -hmm. kids to have? And the district has worked so hard and we have so many great things that we're working on with their backpack of success skills and those six different areas. Um, we need more evaluations. Yes, a child needs to read. A child needs to be literate. A child needs to be able to do math. But we also need to have those skills that make them successful successful in the community, successful as a citizen, successful in the workplace. And we're not measuring for those skills right now. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, as someone who's very interested in school policy, I think you've, you've kind of talked about one, you know, measuring in different ways and things like that. Um, what are some changes that you would like to see the legislature implement in order to deal with some of the challenges that JCPS is facing? I think one one thing I would like to see is so on our dashboard of um, like uh, student achievement for the KSA, it's called now, um, we have a reading assessment and that reading assessment starts in third grade and it does not include any foundational skills. So it's effectively only assessing comprehension and vocabulary. Well, how are we as policymakers going to figure out why X number of our students aren't able to do that if we don't evaluate whether or not they can do the foundational skills? And so with Senate Bill 9, um, Senator West and Rep Tipton's bill, um, every district has to now select a diagnostic. And in JCPS, we're using something called map fluency. And actually children will read something, physically read it, it'll record them, and it'll tell you what they can read. So I could say this child can and can't read, literally. And that data is something that we need to in, embed in our you know, rankings or whatever it's called when they do all the test scores and they, they release the numbers. You know, it's not just can a child answer a comprehension question. If we want to know if a child can read and we just appropriated $20 million to develop the capacity of teachers to teach reading, we need to measure what it is we're trying to get. And so I would like to see a metric within our accountability scores for foundational skills. I think that would be important. Um, and I think that would probably be one of the most important things we could do. Yeah. If other people want to get involved in advocating for JCPS in the next legislative session, I think that um, they could use all the help they could get probably. Yeah. Uh, how could they do that? Um you know, you could reach out to one of us, um, to one of the legislators, um, Rep. Wilner and I, um, we just did an op-ed. We're trying really hard um, not just to counter what the majority party is saying, but to let's bring back the context. Let's talk about, you know, let's talk about the scope of what JCPS is um offering and mm -hmm. the challenges that JCPS is facing and the changes that we've made in JCPS to try to address those issues. And, um, you know, reach out to one of us and um, we can take, you know, all the support we can get. I think that write your own op-ed. I think someone could do that because the, the news cycle will pick up, as you knew on the busing thing, the bus delays and so forth, the news cycle will pick up on whatever will get clicks. But we also need to present those good stories. You know, I got an email from a parent who had children, three different children in three different tiers of JCPS. And she just said, thank you. And she had seen that I did the forum for parents. She said, I love JCPS. My children are so happy in their programs. They love their teachers. They love their schools. I'm so delighted with the education they're getting. You know, if if you're thrilled with the education your child is getting, let, let people know. So often mm -hmm. people will have frustrating things to say about the district, 
But if you ask a parent about their own child's teacher, they'll be like, oh, my kid's doing well or things are going well. Or the person who has so much to say about the district no longer has or never had children in JCPS. So, you know, I think if, if you are supportive of JCPS or if you have concerns, I want to know them too. You know, I, I want to know them too. Um, but do reach out, write in an op-ed, let's spread the positive news, you know, spread, spread the happy things that are going on. We're planning today, our building is doing, um, Stephen Covey um, kind of segued into what's called Leader in Me. And it's something that elementary elementary schools are doing. And it teaches children to be proactive, you know, begin with the end of mind, all those Stephen Covey things. And we're having an open house with a leader in me theme. And we had our meeting about it today. And, you know, there are so many leadership building, wonderful, positive things going on in our buildings every single day. Um, Tough kids coming to school who've had loss, who are you know, dealing with a lot of trauma, a lot of difficult things. And we're loving our children every day. We're trying to, you know, just every day, these educators, including myself, I mean, every day I work hours and hours and hours to pull together things that my kids are just thrilled about doing. I tried bringing water bottles. That one's not going to work because somebody (laughs) stuck a pencil in the water bottle to drink out of the bottom. I'm like, okay, we won't do water bottles. Sounds fun to me. Yeah, no, <laughs> but, um, you know, our educators in every building, every building all around the city are doing everything we can do to bring children the absolute um, best education. But I think we also need to look at societal issues, too. Yeah. Uh, why are our children? Why do we have so many behavior issues? What is it going on in society, you know, you kind of think of, um, you know, the whole incarceration system. We've got so many people who are incarcerated for maybe things that they don't need to be incarcerated for. If they're not dangerous to others, um, maybe they could do something at home and have a job and stay with their families. And that would be less disruptive for our kids and give them some stability. I mean, Mm -hmm. um, you know, across the state, the opioid epidemic is just rat. It's just terrible for families and children. And, um, you know, we need to look at what's going on, not just how do we discipline children so they behavior better, but what is it outside the school doors that we, what can we do as policymakers whether it's mental health support, whether it's financial support, whether it's um, what what do we need to do to give our children the best world to grow up in? Yeah. Well, uh, you know, like you mentioned, we ask so much of the school system. They, they yes, have to, yeah. to be basically social workers and educators and, uh, you know, cooks and they feed. Right. Kids. I mean, they do everything. Uh, and of course, uh, it's just so hard to do that in a, in a uh, you know, a city as, as big, diverse and, and with so many problems and assets as as Louisville. Um, and, and you know what? We require a lot of good leadership and you're providing that both here and uh, as a teacher and as a legislator in Frankfurt. So we really appreciate you do, for doing that. And we also appreciate you coming here, especially on your birthday. Oh, so, well, thank you, Robert. So, Dr. Representative Tina Bojanowski, thank you so much for being with us today. We really appreciate it. You're welcome. Jasmine, how can people find us? They can find us on Twitter and Instagram at MyOldKWAPod. They can like our Facebook page and listen to our podcast on the podcast app of their choice. We also have a newsletter. You can subscribe to it at tinyletter.com slash newsletter. And we have a Patreon page where you can support what we are doing for as little as a dollar a month. You can do that at patreon.com slash podcast. And last but not least, we're part of the Dimcast Network and the Forward Kentucky Network. All right, everybody. Thank you for listening, and we will see you next week.